Hey, welcome to uh, Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is uh, Eric Whitehead. He's at uh, Control Panel, I think, but we are separated today owing to a certain technological complication. It reminds me a little bit uh, of Iowa, but I think not so severe as Iowa. Uh, also on the line is uh, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of, Editor of Grants, and with us today is, uh, is someone new, a guest, and he is Joe Lawler. Hey, Joe, welcome. I'm going to... Uh, give you a proper introduction as well as your educational bona fides in a, just a second. But welcome, Joe. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to join you and Evan on the podcast today. Yeah. Joe is the uh, progenitor of uh, JFL Partners. And I'm going to guess, Joe F. Lawler, that the initials have something to do with you. They do. Uh, when I was trying to find the name for the fund, it seemed like all the good ones were taken. And I thought, uh, given our yeah. uh, propensity to sort out snake oil, that uh, I'd come up with a name like that. And when I looked up the Latin name, for mongoose, which I thought might be a good way to go. It turned out to be herpestes, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. And so JFL, it became... I, yeah, I, I see your point. Uh, anyway, you, you, the, the fund has now passed its uh, its fifth birthday, so congratulations on that. But Thank we you. are here today to talk about uh, medical-related things having to do with investing. Sure. And I don't know about... You know, Joe, is, a, is a, as I mentioned, is, is a, actually is a physician. Now, I am married to a doctor, and, uh, and Eric Whitehead is the husband of a registered nurse, and Eric Evan just went to the doctor this morning. So all of us, I think, have some medical qualifications to this important question about uh, epidemiology and the like. But I'm going to ask you, Joe, as a particularly qualified physician, is it too late to get long surgical masks? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so. I, I think the with this coronavirus, it might be helpful to start with what we know. Uh, we know they've been with us for a very long time. And when they cause human illness, it's usually gastrointestinal. And so more recently, we've seen examples of uh, coronaviruses like SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And now we have this most recent Wuhan outbreak. And you know, based on publications in, in the New England Journal and Lancet, uh, this does not appear to be a particularly lethal virus. It's, it's say, similar to a bad flu. Um, and, you know, many of the people who have unfortunately died from coronavirus are elderly or infirm. So I think further, in terms of disease severity, we know the numerator pretty well because we can, for the most part, count and attribute death. However, we really don't know what the denominator is because we only test those individuals who show up at a hospital with symptoms. Also, this thing could be treated. I guess it is being treated, financially speaking, through a quantitative easing. Uh, yes, it seems that way. Evan, I interrupted you. you were yeah, gonna... yeah, I was going to ask one question. Uh, the, the one thing we struggle with uh, with anything China-related is we're never clear how good the data are. How can you be sure that this virus isn't something we should really worry about just given kind of the opacity in the data? Well, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of it. I think that this coronavirus, I mean, the first thing we did when we saw this outbreak came out is compared the sequence of the Wuhan virus with other coronaviruses. And it's, so it's 96% identical in uh, sequence to SARS and 100% identical in the active uh, site. So uh, it's reasonable to think that it'll be similar to SARS, perhaps in terms of severity, although perhaps more contagious. And so that's why I think it's, it's unlikely that this is going to be you know, the, the incredibly lethal outbreak that people have feared. Yep. It also suggests that Gilead's drug is likely to, to work here because Gilead's drug works on uh, SARS, at least in vitro. Hey, Joe, um, you have um, have compiled a very impressive record over the past five years. You have uh, generated a higher return than the XBI, which is the biotech index, and you have done it with less volatility, uh, less uh, uh, fewer drawdowns and less severe drawdowns. So uh, congratulations on all of what you have wrought. 
Thank and, you. And with 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 that credential in mind, tell us about uh, uh, the opportunity set, as we say on Wall Street, in biotech. I want to hear your views on what's to do with a long side and what's to sell short. Okay. Well, I think that the starting more generally, right? There there are the haves and the have-nots in biotech. Those companies uh, for which that are large index constituents that have some sort of uh, M and A. Uh, hype around them, they trade at really fancy valuations. Those companies that either have low or no index holdings, they are pretty much given away. And so we we do find things on the on the long side and the short side that are create that the opportunity we believe is created by this. So the the issue is of course on some of the longs that they are uh, smaller companies because they're not index. Um, they're not index owned. So I would say let's start, uh, which is atypical for me. We can start with a long if you'd like. And one of the companies that uh, that we're long right now is a company called Aglia Pharmaceuticals. Uh, they're located here in Austin, which turns out to be just a coincidence. Um, but they have a, a drug that treats a rare disease. It's an enzyme that you infuse into patients, and it's designed to bring down arginine levels, and that it does. It's a rare disease, but it seems to work in these patients, and they're they're very likely to have data by the end of the year. Now, this company, uh, as we speak, has a market cap for approximately $200 million, and that's pretty low, uh, given that they're very likely to have an approved drug next year. What's the, what's the name again, please, and what's the ticker? Uh, the name is Aglia, spelled A-E-G-L-E-A, and the ticker is A-G-L-E, Alpha Golf Lima Echo. Revenues? They do not have revenues yet. Well, that doesn't – actually, in biotech, Evan, that, that's no black mark against you, is it? I mean – that's kind of par for the course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, Didn't I read sure. your letter, Joe? That's like uh, of the uh, there's some f- fabulous fact in here about um, uh, three quarters of um, of the companies that do produce revenue in this biotech world uh, change uh, uh, trade uh, change hands at uh, evaluation in excess of ten times sales, not earnings, yeah. sales. That's correct. Um, so uh, uh, tell us about those and how do they get to those. Uh, Unimaginable heights. Not actually, not unimaginable. No. Uh, how do they get so high? Well, I think because people feel like they are going to get purchased um, by another company, and that really drives, I think, a, a lot of the valuation. So, if you have a drug that's on the market and it's selling, one way that pharmaceutical, the larger pharmaceutical companies, can add to their top line is to simply buy your company. And that is that is a risk uh, because pharmaceutical productivity has declined over the years. And that's a function of a couple things. One, it's, it's difficult to develop drugs, the hard problem. Two, we've done a pretty good job on the one, the, the sort of low-hanging fruit, things like hypertension and high cholesterol. And the uh, third thing is that just in general, the productivity has declined because the disease biology is more difficult. So as a result, there have been uh, there's been a lot of uh, M&A, and despite our best efforts to avoid it, we you know find that we often on, are on the wrong side of that, which doesn't feel good, but it, I think it's a, a risk of of doing business. So go ahead. I'd like to ask about the productivity because I hear from so many people that we're on the cusp of a golden age in um, new drug discovery because personalized medicine, uh, CAR-T or whatever have you, uh, is going to make finding new drugs easier. We can get more specific in kind of treating diseases right now. And suddenly we're going to have all these companies just mine drugs more reliably, faster and cheaper. And I've heard this from several people, not all biotech investors. Right. Well, so there's a a couple parts of, of that statement to unpack. And the first is if you measure productivity as a function 
function of drugs that are approved by the FDA, then it's worth noting that the standard for approval has declined quite a bit over the years. I think the FDA enjoys stating each year that they approve a large number of drugs. And as long as they recognize their success as the number of drugs that reach the market, uh, you can bet that the, the drugs that reach the market won't necessarily be of the same standard as the ones that have in the past. With respect to uh, techniques for developing drugs, about 20 years ago, people talked about new ways of doing chemistry that was going to allow us to discover in drug development. But really what it did is just move the bottleneck a little bit closer to the clinic. One still has to do all the animal toxicology and these things, and they just take a lot of time, and there's no easy way to automate it. One of the companies that we think about on the short side uh, has this kind of platform technology where they claim that they can invent drugs simply by making a, a target sequence and administering it to the patient. And that company is Moderna Therapeutics, ticker MRNA. Hey, uh, Joe, um, from the patient's point of view, something you wrote in, in this uh, fourth quarter letter of yours seems most pertinent. That is, you know, so many drugs get uh, approved now that people seemingly have stopped asking basic questions such as, will I live longer if I take this drug and will my quality of life improve? What should a patient be asking, knowing that more drugs are being approved and are being offered and being prescribed? Well, I think though, it, depending on the disease, of course, I mean, that, those comments were restricted to um, cancer drugs. But that's really, I think what you need to ask is, what is this drug actually going to do for me? And so in the case of oncology, it's more straightforward than perhaps in other indications, right? Patients care about living longer or living better, as it were. And, and again, this is for patients who I suppose we can apply it across the whole spectrum of oncology drugs, but more often these are later stage oncology patients. And I think it's a, a great fault of the FDA that they're not demanding that companies answer these questions before the drug becomes approved, because if a patient asks a treating physician these questions, they really don't have the data to tell them. And So going back to Jim's question, uh, in your letter you wrote, patients now more than ever need to be their own advocate, but if the mm -hmm. doctors don't have the data, and myself just walking in as a layperson doesn't know the right questions to ask, how best do you advise people to kind of navigate this maze? Well, I think they have to ask their treating physician, what does the academic data show? And in cases where there's simply no data available, then it really comes down to a discussion between the patient and their physician to determine what's best to do. I, I think the other thing that, you know, very recently there was a publication in that looked at a bunch of patients from the Veterans Administration who had kidney cancer. And this is what's called a real-life study of what happens with the drugs uh, to treat this disease when it's out in the wild. And these patients had far shorter survival than what was observed in the clinical trial. And that's in part because the patients who enter these trials tend to be healthier than the average cancer patient. So I think that the patient needs to ask the physician, how closely do I mirror those patients in the clinical trial such that I might be able to expect the same results that were observed there? Joe, um, healthcare spending is 20% uh, or so of GDP, and healthcare-related debt is one of the leading causes of personal bankruptcy. And you hear a lot of the contenders for the Democratic nomination for president uh, proposing sweeping health care reforms. What's the risk uh, to investors in the biotech sector? Well, if I, I think the uh, what's driven a lot of the growth has been the ability to just raise prices. Uh, companies raise prices uh, quite a bit. It accounts for a lot of the growth in, in the company's earnings. And if one believes that'll stop under a Democrat president, then yeah, sure, that's going to really hamper growth in the sector. I think that it would require Congress to act. And I think that's what's prevented a lot of legislation that might help uh, healthcare pricing. I mean, I've, I've long been an advocate of drug importation um, coupled with most favored nation status amongst the G20 as a way of uh, 
equalizing the cost. Some might say exporting drug price inflation out of the U.S., but it gets to the same place. Uh, passive investing, Joe, is another topic that you take up and, and you're missive to your investors. And you point out that, uh, uh, that people who invest in indices are, are in effect, uh, parasites. They, they draw their sustenance in financial terms from enterprising or active investors who uh, are in the business of price discovery. And you say, when the parasite becomes too large for its host to support, bad things happen. Could you elaborate? Sure. So I think the passive indexing, when it's a small component of the market, is fine. It it relies on, and I don't think practitioners of passive indexing would state otherwise, that it relies on active managers to set the price. And when you have fewer and fewer, well, or I should say when you have more and more passive investing in, and therefore fewer active managers, it makes it more difficult for the price to be set. And uh, I'll give you an example. If a company owns, I don't know, a, a certain amount of acres of forest and it burns down, those individuals who are short the company, reasoning quite correctly that the lumber that they thought they might be able to sell and they now won't, would expect it to go down a bunch. And usually an active investor who was long it would, would see the same thing and would likely sell the stock, but indexers won't. They won't sell until such time as the security is deleted from the index. And I think that delays things for quite a while. Uh, and it also means that there there are fewer active managers there to who read cues. And we, we uh, jokingly here call them cue readers. And the fewer of them there are, really the worse for price setting in the market. Going to this, you said in the bizarre market in which we find ourselves investing, companies are worth more after their drugs fail. <laughs> Typically, being right on, long, on a long is an exercise in psychology. Being right on a short is an exercise in science. In this kind of distorted world that you're investing in, how do you invest when fundamentals don't seem to drive prices? It's difficult. It is difficult. I think that we like to look at what's going to make a stock converge to what we believe is fair value, and even despite a high participation of passive uh, indexers. And so some of those things are single product companies. They tend to converge better because I, I think then most people will appreciate that if the drug fails, the, the company doesn't have a lot to fall back on. Companies where there's a repeatable metric, so if not a clinical trial, something like a drug launch, where you can get weekly prescription data to see how that launch is going. And I think having hard catalysts really helps us a lot. Well, uh, here's something else that, uh, that jumped out at me from your recent letter, and that is that biotech is in the golden age of stock fraud. Um, <laughs> do tell. Yeah, well, it might be hard to talk about specific companies here. Oh, but we don't have that many listeners. And, and besides <laughs> that, as from what I know, they're very discreet people. So you can. Just... <laughs> well, well I, I think we're going to just stick to sort of general, uh, general statements about this, <laughs> <laughs> respectfully, which is that uh, I, I think that there's very little scrutiny placed on what companies say about their drugs. And um, generally, companies can report all sorts of things about the drug, sometimes everything but that which matters most. And it's glossed over. If, if a company issues something, if a biotech company, for example, were to issue a press release with the word positive in it, and almost every press release issued is positive in some way, shape, or form, the stocks sort of reflexively go up. Now, that may change if people look beyond the headline, but it seems like one can curate and selectively present the data in such a 
way that it looks better than it is. And when that happens, the investors may buy the stock and may bid the stock up, even when the, the data really doesn't justify that. Yeah. One of your proposed reforms, I know, is that uh, companies ought not to be allowed to generate a press release uh, concerning earnings without the accompanying 10Q. Because yeah. um, I gather that uh, under the First Amendment, you can say whatever you darn well please in a press release, but a Q is, uh, is an official document and uh, there's only so much you can invent. Could you uh, tell us about that? Yeah, sure. I think when companies put out earnings, they have a certain statutory limit before they have to file the 10Q. And as a result, they can say a lot of things about how the returns have been generated or how their income has come in. But until you read the Q, you really don't understand exactly what how all the uh, pieces fit together. And so if a company puts out a press release that sort of not necessarily overstates, but presents in the best possible light the actual quarterly results, and you have to wait till the Q to figure out that they perhaps weren't as good as, as initially perceived, I think it's a disservice to all market participants that one would want to see all the data up front. And really, it doesn't matter if a company reports their earnings ahead of the queue or not. They can just as easily wait until it can all come out at once. Just to give an example, uh, using a non-biotech company, Grants recently wrote about a company who rallied very strongly after reporting much stronger than expected free cash flow. And the market seemed to really you know, invest a lot into that. It didn't come out until the, the company filed this queue a few weeks later that all the cash flow improvement came from factoring receivables, which the company neglected to say anything about on the call. Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, example of, of exactly the kind of thing that this would prevent. Well, Joe, is, this, is it possible that we are in the early days of algorithmic trading and that the kind of the primitive scanning of these press releases and documents through automated means is is a source of a lot of false signaling. And of course, behind that false signaling, which is generally bullish, is a Federal Reserve that wants us to be bullish and is providing us the means to be so. But uh, is it not possible that as the science and the technology improves in, in automated uh, in, or in, uh, algorithmic uh, reading and, uh, and all these automated methods that uh, we're going to have uh, less reflexive action in the form of headline reading? Well, I think so. Initially, many years ago, I worried that what I do would be taken over by computers. Or, or, or algorithmized, if that's even a word, to the, such an extent that human participants were no longer necessary. And over time, I, I'm no longer of that belief, at least in my narrow scope of the market, which is healthcare and biotech companies. And the reason why is because even in the scientific literature, if we had some sort of all-knowing artificial intelligence that could scan the entirety of the scientific literature and attempt to make conclusions, the problem that we would have is that roughly half of that data, at least according to a buyer study, conducted some years ago can't be reproduced fully. And so these papers, of course, don't come with a red stamp on them that says this is yeah. not reproducible, nor are they published in the Journal of Irreproducible Results. And as a result, one has to decide how to weight each piece of data that they see. And right. two people can reasonably read the same papers and come away with different conclusions based solely on how they're weighting the data. And Evan, did you discover uh, a piece of research from one of the Federal Reserve Banks that shows that some disquieting large percentage of economic research can't be reproduced, that it's all kind of... Uh... Something like two-thirds or something like that. It was, it was a ridiculously high number, and it makes you worry about um, how financial decisions are based off of in, in the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Well, Joe, I would, as a, as a layman, I would uh, advise you to continue what you're doing, that is to uh, you know apply a scientific method to uh, investing and, uh, and to sell what ought to go down and buy what ought to go up. What do you think, Evan? Is that, uh, that's not pretty, pretty good advice. Yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah. I think I, I'm, I'm well, pleased to hear that advice, Jim, because I'm not sure I'm good at much else. <laughs> well... <laughs> 
You are an excellent podcast guest, and we thank you for being with us. You know, we at Grants are in the business of active journalism. We're struggling constantly against the inroads being made on by passive, you know, machine-driven journalists. In fact, most of it, Evan, doesn't seem like we are entirely passive. I mean, these people just – anyway, that's my prejudice. But, Joe, it's been a pleasure to have you. And uh, five – I'm going to say 10 more years of fabulous uh, investing, I, I wish you. And, thank uh, you, Jim. We'll talk to you certainly before those 10 years are up. But once again, it's been a delight. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And we will be back soon. Current Yield Grants, Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Thank you.